You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. An hour of news, views and interviews on the arts in Mid-Missouri. My name is Diana Moxon. On today's show, we'll start with theatre and end with art. Later in the show, the True False Film Fest's art installation director, Duncan Binboydel, joins me to talk about this year's art installations. But first, what a pleasure it is to welcome back to the Speaking of the Arts studio, fresh from her European tour, the uber-talented Meg Phillips-Crespi. Hello, Meg. Good morning. What a great introduction. (laughs) So let me first ask you to tell us, where have you been since we last had you on the show? Well, my husband, uh, David Crespi, who's a theater professor at MU, was a Fulbright scholar this past semester, the fall semester, and we went to uh, Israel and Greece. He was researching the Jews of Greece. So I've been away from home, and now I'm back. It was a great experience, and it was also very lovely to come home. And what are your bring-homes rather than takeaways? What are your bring-homes from your time in Europe? Uh, You know, I learned a lot. Um, Mostly, I really appreciate in a way I did not before that in America, here in Missouri, for example... Iowa and Illinois don't have really bad feelings about us. <laughs> you know, in, in Europe, everything so... But I know. That, <laughs> you're not the first person to make that joke. <laughs> Do they have bad feelings about each other in Greece? Um, well, so in Greece, um, you know, I say Iowa and Illinois because to the north and to the uh, west, uh, partic- or to, excuse me, to the east, um, Turkey particularly, there's some bad blood. Right. Yeah. That goes back a long way. Yeah. Further than the Kansas. Yeah. There, there was a holiday. <laughs> That's a, yeah, just a dad. There's a a holiday in Greece um, that is military based. And so there was all these planes flying overhead. And I was working with my Greek tutor. And so he was telling me, don't worry, it's just, you know, the the holiday. And then David came in. He's like, "Uh, Turkey, everything okay? (laughs) So it's just you get a little nervous sometimes. So you learned a little Greek while you were there? Uh, Nay, which means yes. (laughs) Ligo, which means a little. (laughs) So could you order a beer in a bar by the time you left? No. Uh, Thelo, bira. Excellent. I want a beer. <laughs> uh, what about theatre? Did you catch up on much theatre while you were over there? I guess it was difficult if it's all in Greek. We actually did see a play that had English, um, they called them super titles because they mm. were up at the top. So that was interesting. And actually it was an Irish play. So that was kind of a little bit of a, huh, okay. when you stopped and think about it. But when we were involved in the play, you know, you didn't think about it. Right. So before we launch into your new project, I think we should take a moment to talk about some of the things that you have achieved so far, because you have such a long list. Your play, entitled Mostly Sweet, was selected as part of the New York City Cherry Lane Theatre's Tongues series in 2013. You won the 2018 Missouri Stories International Screenwriting Fellowship with a TV pilot you wrote. As a composer, you won the 2017 Jackie White National Children's Playwriting Contest. Your most recent musical, Lady Parts, a song cycle, was performed both here and in Kansas City. You have been commissioned by the University of Missouri Theatre Department to compose incidental music and by regional theatre to write original plays and musicals for production. You act and sing... Um, You have two plays coming up in Kansas City, which I found out 
randomly because one of my other friends is one of the other playwrights. Oh, oh, fun. And that's coming up beginning of February, I think, two short plays. Uh, yes, uh, February 1st, Friday. Okay. And, and then you have a brand new project, which you gave us a little hint about before you left for Greece. And now you're back. It is launching fully and it is the Girl Rilla Theatre. So tell us about Girl Rilla Theatre. Well, Girl Rilla started, um, it's really the project that's a culmination of decades of frustration, for lack of a better word. I have been involved in theater for many years, and over time, I have just seen time and time again, many women will show up to audition for a play, and there are two good parts for women. And then not enough men will show up for the eight to ten good parts for men. And so... A, you have women who are languishing, not being able to perform. B, you have parts being played by inexperienced people. And it's not that that's a problem. That's how you gain experience and get better. But that is not an opportunity that, you know, inexperienced women ever get. And so it has just been a major frustration for me um, seeing that happen. And so um, Girl Rilla Theater is my attempt to try to write that a little bit over the years you know, directors and actors, of course, are aware of this imbalance. And so I would keep seeing on Facebook a conversation, hey, maybe we should try gender gender blind casting and colorblind casting as well, or color conscious casting, which we can talk about later. But it's a discussion, but I don't ever see very much happen about it. And I think, you know, when you are directing in the community, it's it's hard to take chances sometimes because you've got so much on your plate as a director in the community, you don't have the support that you might, for example, in a university. So this is a way for me to not only give female performers, female identifying performers, more of a chance to play some really great parts, but also to show directors, hey, this works. You can do this too. And is that because plays with good roles don't exist or because those that do exist just don't get chosen by directors? Just in general, plays always have far more interesting roles for men than Mm. for women. There is, when you look at the stats, like you said, not only for women, but also for minorities, members of the LGBTQ and disabled communities, it is obvious fairly fast that there's no fair slice of the pie for anybody that isn't a man. Men are twice as likely to have a speaking role than women. Um, this is a study from the 1,100 highest grossing films from 2007 to 2017. Female speaking characters accounted for just under 31% of the almost 49,000 characters in all of those movies. Um, when you look behind the lens it's the same story which may explain a lot yes out of 1223 directors only 54 were women you people who are listening can't see but my jaw literally just (laughs) dropped just drop and then when we do get into a film where women have a role they are more than twice as likely to be shown in sexually revealing clothing and if you're an actress over 40 unless you're Meryl Streep Glenn Close or a dame you pretty much hosed you are you are (laughs) so are you when you're looking for female roles what criteria are you taking into account in terms of either the relationships in the play or the plot do they have to pass the Bechtel test where which is the play must have at least two women in it with names who talk to each other about something other 
than a man. <laughs> I love the Bechdel test. It's such a low bar, and yet so few things pass it. So few it. films pass, yeah. Um, I actually didn't look at the Bechdel test for uh, my inaugural season of 2019 uh, because women were going to be playing all the roles. I actually thought, you know, it might be interesting to do a play. For example, um, in March, we're going to be doing Taming of the Shrew that's got some really problematic things in it. Mm-hmm. And I suspect that watching women do both the male roles and the female roles will bring some things to light that people might not think about otherwise. That's my suspicion, and I'm really excited to see how it turns out. Mm, I was going to ask about Taming the Shoe. We'll come back to that later on if we talk about the first play. I mean, the plays that you have chosen for this first year, there are six plays every other month, only two are written by women. So you've still got four male writers. Yes. Are there, is there a shortage of female writers? Is that a problem, finding plays by rim, written it is, by women? It is harder to find plays written by women, especially in the public domain. Um, this year, I... I was able to get a grant from the University of Missouri, um, and that went to buy Kindles that we're going to be using to be able to stage the the plays. So I knew I wasn't going to have money for royalties, and so I needed to stick with public domains. So it is harder to find stuff by women. It is possible to find plays by women that are in the public domain. And I really went back and forth, you know, do I want to do just plays by women or... But then I also also thought, well, I don't want to say that women can only play roles written by women. I wanted to broaden it for, Hmm. you know, women can play anything, basically. Right. So in your, let's talk about your opening show of the season, your adaptation for American audiences of the ancient Greek comedy Lysistrata, first staged almost two and a half thousand years ago. I know, that's 411 BC. (laughs) So give us a synopsis of the story. Well, it was fun because, you know, I was actually in Greece last fall adapting this Greek play, so that was really, really a lot of fun. Um, Lysistrata was written in 411 BC, and it was written by a Greek playwright during the middle of the Peloponnesian Wars, which had been going on for about 20 years by that point. It's basically Athens and Sparta were fighting each other instead of fighting all the external enemies of Greece. And so um, in the, within the play, Lysistrata, who is a frustrated housewife from Athens, decides to organize all the ladies, and she says, ladies, let's go on a sex strike until the men agree to end the war, they get no nookie. So, <laughs> and things, ten- tensions build, things rise from there, so to speak. Now, it's, it's, a, it's a long play, so I guess you cut a lot of the monologues down to single lines. But when you look at adapting a play, what's the process? You've got this you know, multi-hundred-page play, and you think, yeah, I've got to get it down to you know, an hour and a half or something. How right. do you choose what to cut? You know, it's interesting, particularly with Lysistrata, it's a great you know, starting point. People hear, it's a sex strike, ha-ha, that sounds great. And then you start reading it, and you're like, oh, uh, this is just really written in a way that is very different than the theater that American audiences are used to. So it starts out really very similar to American theater. And so I just started at the beginning. And then as I went along, I thought, anytime I got a little bored, I tried to see how can I change this. I cut some things, but I tried to, when I cut, take the the germ of what was going on and put it um, for example, there's choruses in Aristophanes' versions, that, which are not in mine, but I took kind of the germ of the idea that was happening within those choral uh, conversations, and I would give it to a character elsewhere. Mm. 
if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Now, in the play, there are a lot of obviously roles for men, even there though are. it's uh, even though the, the the main characters are very strong women. There are a lot of men in the play too. Do you cut some of them out? What I cut out basically was a lot of the choral stuff, but I did keep male characters. We just have been. I'm going to be careful about what I can say here on the radio. <laughs> so the men, uh, the there's older grumpy men, and they don't really have what I'm about to talk about. But any of the younger virile men have um, Athenian Spartan walking sticks. Let's call it that. <laughs> and so we last night for the first time we wa- worked with the walking sticks, and um, yeah, so seeing female actors walking around with. Their, their cloaks very wide out from their body, let's say. There's some tumescence, shall we say. Tumescence, that's a wonderful word, yes. So we do, we did include those male characters and it is very, very funny. It, it is, the play is hilarious. I was thinking it is kind of slightly worrying that you know, two and a half thousand years later, the concept of women's autonomy and personal choice is still funny. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> we haven't really moved on yes, very much very in two and a half point. thousand years. Yeah. And the original play would have been performed, interestingly, by an all-male cast. Right. So all the women's roles, which made it more funny at the time that all of these padded men, padded in different areas, and you are padding your female right. players. So yes. it's kind of a nice kind of a, opposite. It is. I love that. <laughs> So tell us who is in the play. Tell us about the characters and who plays them. Uh, Lissa Strata is played by an actress named Fiona Blue. Um, her two friends are Kaliniki and Marina, and that is Annabelle Ginter and Angela Howard. Then um, we've got three parts that play several different things. Our two men mostly are played by Dana Bucky and Anna Rawls. And then Katie Hayes is reading stage directions and also playing a three other parts. And people who are familiar with Talking Horse might remember Fiona Blue because she played Johanna in Sweeney Todd recently. She was the beautiful young maiden with long flaxen hair sitting in the window. And she's a wonderful Lissa Strata. Yes, I can imagine. And Dana Bucky very recently was in, just before Christmas. Oh, Clever Little Lies. Clever Little Lies, where she played this very submissive female role so it'll be good to see her in a very strong yes (laughs) yes role yeah it's interesting you know that I have been talking about how poor the female roles are but Lissa Strata actually has great roles for women so it's an exception to the rule I guess it's a great story We've talked about the the tumescence and how you are going to um, work with that. So it, the whole play, you know, really is predicated on sex or the lack yes. thereof. Is this an R-rated production? I would not bring kids, young kids, for sure. Um, teenagers, I would say it depends on your relationship with your teenager. And, um, you know, it's a great starting place for some conversations uh, the teenagers it's not going to be anything they haven't seen before True. Um, we have been working very hard to like there's a, a fine line I think between comedy and pornography <laughs> so we've been trying up a couple of things and like oh nope don't do that uh, try it this way instead so we're keeping it clean ish yeah <laughs> but it's definitely the whole script is one giant double entendre right so. now you, you wrote it while you were in Greece now you've seen it your adaptation performed are you still adapting are you still working on lines a little bit uh, we have done a little bit of tweaking here and there and also I wrote it specifically to be performed at Talking Horse as a reading it's up on its feet because we've got the Kindles and so 
you're actually kind of able to forget that actors have a script in their hands. But I want to, after this, adapt it further so that it's just, you know, a stage version. And I would love to see it performed at some point. To all of the guerrilla season, though they're only one night only, and there's only one week, really, between the casting call and the staging. So they're all dynamic readings. Correct. The actors are all have got their Kindles and they're acting and reading. They're not having to memorize all the lines. So there just isn't time. Right. There's not time. Um, I actually, I had this idea. And so last summer, before we left, I borrowed some other Kindles and did a reading of a play by a woman, actually, um, that won the 19, I think, 22 Pulitzer Prize and just had a reading at the Hewland Lake Shelter to see, hey, will this work? And for that one, they didn't even have any direction. Everybody was just kind of experienced actors and was moving around and trying to, you know, when somebody steps in front of you, you step the other way, uh, just basic stage things. And it, it worked quite well. So I thought, okay, I think this is mm. this is definitely doable. So they are moving. Are they... Is there a costume? Yeah, we have simple costumes. We have um, togas. Togas. Togas actually a little bit more Roman, so they're toga-ish. I didn't know that before I started researching. Mallory Donahue, who runs so with her mother, So Here, which is a, a blog that's got thousands of followers, she reached out and she said, do you need help with costumes? And I was like, no, I'm just going to do togas. And I was like, wait a minute, somebody really talented just offered their help. So I said, yes, please. <laughs> so she has built us some, uh, built, sewed us some uh toga-ish things. Um, and they are moving around. They're not just standing still and reading. Oh, they're definitely moving. So you you are, is it called blocking when you move people around the stage? Yes, yes. So people are moving around. They're lying down on a bench with, say, two mesents, for example. <laughs> it's going to be quite entertaining. I can't wait. So it seems like a lot of work to adapt a play for just a one-night performance. What are you hoping is the onward life of, of these adaptations that you've written? Well, I'm hoping to be able to put it out there for other theaters to be able to produce. It's a little bit more work, actually, than I realized going in. <laughs> I just sat down and looked at Taming of the Shrew just the other day because it's the next one on the list. And I was like, oh, dear, there's a lot. It's not nearly as ready as I was hoping it would be. So right now I'm just trying to focus on Gorilla Theater. And then once it's done, I'll think next steps. Okay. And so let's talk a little about the rest of the season. Uh, this one is coming up this Saturday night. So Lisa yes. Strata is at Talking Horse Theater this Saturday. The next one is The Taming of the Shrew. Yes. What else have you got for the other bi-monthly performances? Uh, so in May, we're doing two one-acts. Uh, the first one is called Trifles, and it is by Susan Glaspell, who is a, a playwright who was working at the beginning of the 20th century. It's about a murder. And it's been called, like, just the perfect one act. Alfred Hitchcock actually adapted it into the Twilight Zone episode, A Jury of Her Peers. And then along with that, I'm doing a, another one act called You Killed My Bird by Claudia Barnett. And it's written a, almost 100 years later. And it's about the same murder case, but also about how about women murderers and how the media interacts with that. And it's hmm. really fascinating. And then we're going to be doing Othello. And then the last one, let's see, did I skip one? July, July. Oh, July, we're doing a, a really fun comedy called She Stoops to Conquer. Okay, yeah. Yep. And then in November, we're doing one that has yet to be written. It's called <laughs> Dress to Kill. And it is based on the kind of locked room, impossible mysteries of Carolyn Wells. And um, yet to be written, you mean by you? By me. <laughs> <laughs> 
that's a pretty that's a pretty busy year. I just couldn't find a sixth one that I was excited about. I kept looking at Pygmalion, and I just couldn't get excited about it. I might do it at a future mm. point. And I thought, you know, dang it, I'll just write one. So, do you feel like it's a perfect length for these plays? Are they an hour, an hour and a half? Yeah, Lysistrata is running about an hour, and I think. Between an hour and an hour and a half is a good amount of time. I should add that we're also at many, if not all, of the performances. We're having a speaker from the University of Missouri to come and talk about gender-related issues or something related to the play and gender or power, etc. And so that will make the evening... 10 minutes longer. I'm asking for about 10 minutes. Okay. And that's happening this weekend too? That's happening this weekend. We've got Joan Hermsen, who is a women and gender studies professor at MU. After this, The Taming of the Shrew by William Shakespeare. It's a fabulous choice. Thank you. It has an immediately offensive title, the idea of a woman being the shrew. Indeed. But there is apparently, I didn't know this, debate over whether it is misogynistic or actually a condemnation of patriarchal dominance. It could be laced, seen as being laced with irony, could poke fun at gender politics. What is What side is your adaptation taking? Oh, gosh, you would have to ask me that. It, I had mentioned I just started to dive in, and I have come across that very debate, and I have not yet decided where I'm going to land. Um, because I will be doing an adaptation, you know, I'm going to be cutting some things, so do I, depending which side I go, it, you know, will dictate things I cut. For example, Beatrice is actually violent too. She's hitting her younger sister. And I'm like, do I keep that? Do I not keep that? So uh, part of it may depend. Another thing that I would like to do is give opportunities not only to women, but to actors of color. And with getting back from Europe so recently, I wasn't able to really do a lot of recruiting for for, um, Lysistrata. Mm. But going forward, I would love to include more actors of color. And part of color conscience casting is like colorblind casting, just put any person of color anywhere versus color conscious is maybe don't put a just don't put a person of color in a role that perpetuates stereotypes. Right. So it may also depend on what I get casting wise, you know, in terms of how much violence I keep or how much which way I go. Mm. That was a very long answer to your question. (laughs) From what I read, it seemed like the beginning of Taming the Shrew, there's a part called The Induction. So it's kind of a play within a play. And if you omit The Induction, then it seems like it's more misogynistic. If you include it, then it's more like, do you see that I'm giving you irony? And this is a play within a play. And that is so fascinating to me, actually, because I have never seen a production that included The Induction. And Interestingly, the induction kind of disappears in Act 1, and Shakespeare has five acts. So then I was reading further, and there's some productions will do. There was a production called The Taming of a Shrew that was written at roughly the same time. They're not sure if it was a plagiarism or if it's Shakespeare that's just a different draft that has those characters from the induction the whole way through. Mm. So I was thinking about seeing if I can find that, and other directors have also included additional scenes the whole way through. So. Huh. So these are questions yet to be answered by me. <laughs> and you've got about six weeks to do it, right? <laughs> yes. I'm just trying to get through Alyssa Strata and then I'll dive right in. <laughs> you need a brainstorming session. Yeah, actually. <laughs> so when you called, you a casting called, you get 
a lot of people coming. I mean, Lysistrata, I was kind of really on the edge of like, should I just go and read for this? Because the, the parts are so awesome. Oh, they really But are. I mean, how many people do you get turning up for a reading? Um, I literally could have cast it twice. I had, um, I think, 12 auditioners and was able to, to cast only six. So, and everybody that auditioned was was talented. So, I know. I always, it's so hard to turn people down. I know. I'm always like, maybe I'll get exactly six wonderful actors. <laughs> <laughs> I used to hate it when we had a juried show at the Art League and I'd have to send out the sorry you're not juried in letters. It just, it was so painful to say no to people. You know, you want everybody to be included. Everyone right. has done their best to be there at that moment in time. I mean, the good and the bad part is that women are used to not getting into a play because there's right. not enough parts, but it's it's just... Oh, makes me sad in my soul to turn people down. I know. So all of this first season of shows this year, all at Talking Horse Theatre, are free to attend on a first-come basis, thanks to a sponsorship by the University of Missouri's Division of Inclusion, Diversity and Equity. Yes. Is there a plan to show all of these works also at the university? Uh, no, there's... It, no, not at the moment. Okay. <laughs> well, they're being very generous then to the community. They are. I was really very pleased to get the funding that we got. So. But the idea going forward is that there would be a small fee to attend, and that would cover things like any royalties that you'd have to pay. Royalties. And then, you know, for example, my customer is just working gratis this year right. out of the goodness of her heart, and I would love to be able to play, pay some of our tech people. So. If you're working with a contemporary play that is um, not in the public domain and you have to pay royalties, Presumably, you can't adapt anything. It, that's correct. So it that's is, the other thing. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, you can check in with the playwright and say, may I change this line or that line? But it's really the playwright has the ultimate ownership. And in your experience, do playwrights say yes or hell no? <laughs> I have not personally reached out to anyone to ask. But if somebody reached out to me as a playwright, I would... You know, if the if the change made sense to me, if I could see where they were going with it, I would say yes. Right. Anything else you'd like to add about the upcoming production or the season? Um, just if you are interested in coming, it seats about 70 people tops. So maybe come right at when the house opens at 7 or a bit after. Okay. And it starts at 7.30. Yes. Meg Philip Crespi's adaptation of Lysistrata will be on at Talking Horse Theatre tomorrow night for one night only. It's not going to be tonight. It's not going to be next weekend. If you want to see it, you have to be there tomorrow night. Tickets to the show are free, but as we just said, it is on a first-come basis, and Talking Horse Theatre only seats about 70 people. So don't roll up at the last minute, or you might be disappointed. Meg Phillips-Crespi, thank you so much for coming in to chat. Let's do it again soon. Let's do. Thank you so much. (laughs) You're listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. And after the break, we'll be back with Duncan Binboitel to talk about a particular component of the True False Film Fest, the array of fabulous art installations. Stay close to your wireless. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia. And to my next guest, Duncan Binboitel. Correct. Correctly pronounced. Art Installation Director for the True False Film Fest. Welcome to the studio. It's great to be here. Now, I always like to do a little background research on the people who are coming onto the show. Oh, and I love the quote about you that read, Duncan Binboidel has devoted his career to finding creative solutions for ambitious endeavours. 
that is such I want someone to say that kind of thing about me. That's awesome. So I don't do that kind of thing. <laughs> you have such an interesting resume as both an arts organiser and an artist. You began your career in television production for the sometimes controversial artist Mark Kostabi as a camera operator and production assistant for Title This, a game show where art critics and celebrities compete to title the paintings of the artist's work for cash awards. Yeah. Hilarious. Thank you. That must have been <laughs> you can't fun. can't take all the credit for that, <laughs> You helped create a flotilla of boats which sailed down the Hudson River for the street artist Swoon. You've worked as a curator and organiser for the Chicago Loop Alliance's pop-up art programmes. You also do music video direction and production. And you are an artist whose own work regularly True Falses have probably interacted with. You must check all the boxes for the perfect True False conspirator. I suppose so. It was... uh... Yeah, I've uh, accumulated probably the strangest resume, (laughs) and it was just kind of magical luck that I was able to find the perfect job for myself in my hometown. Right, you are from here. You're a Rockbridge graduate, right? And you went to Mizzou? Uh, Yeah, I did two years at the University of Missouri before taking a year off and moving to New York. And Um, and now you're full-time base back here in Columbia again? I'm full-time Colombian, so... Okay. So tell us about your work, The Camino Sardada, Sardar. that appeared yeah. Sardar, that appeared in 2017, True False uh, Yes, I think. believe so. It was kind of inspired by, if you can believe it, uh, Pokemon Go. It was kind of one of those things you notice before you kind of see the full picture of stuff, but I was living in Chicago at the time and just kept seeing people looking at their phones and looking through the world through their phones and they were getting to explore really cool parts of the city they might not have gone to but still seeing it through this very intense lens and that was kind of as escape rooms were getting really popular and these kind of analog augmented reality i guess and i was got excited about things like scavenger hunts or treasure hunts i used to do as a kid and just thought that's the best way to do it because you sort of break out of the room or break out of the screen and if anything in the world becomes a, could potentially be a clue, you kind of have this hyper-awareness, or that's what I was hoping to get out of people, is that they start noticing stuff and making residual discoveries of... Around the footprint of the fast. Yeah, around the footprint of the fast. I'd give them a location to find a puzzle, but it wouldn't be like X. It would just be like a blocked-out area. So then the, right. And I'd sort of pick places that you would find things... Did they get? Did they get an award at the end of it? Did they have to complete a? Um, at the the back of the page had sort of a cryptic crossword phrase puzzle, so there was no beginning or end to it. You could start at any point, but there was also no reward other than adventure. <laughs> so I, I, my running joke is that the real treasure is adventure. Right. But, I think that's true of the yeah. fest generally, that it's a big adventure. Mm-hmm. And in 2015, your installation, The Frozen Man, was a life-size wooden figure of a man encased in ice, which is, or maybe was at this point, the heaviest artwork ever created, weighing in at two and a half thousand pounds. Did you build it in Did situ? I ever create it? Not oh, ever. I'm oh, sure okay. there's... <laughs> I mean, for true false. Yeah, for true. Um, I don't know. We might beat that at some... We might have beaten that. I'm not sure. But uh, that was certainly the heaviest thing I've created. We needed a forklift to put it in place, and it took us about a month to freeze all of the ice because um, we had to do it in layers. Because if you just had a giant tank of ice or a tank of water, it wouldn't freeze completely right. in time. So, so 2015 to... was that one of the cold? One of the cold true falses? <laughs> Thankfully not. I was. That was kind of the terror of that piece was that. If we had an ice storm or a cold front come through, I'd just have a very expensive and terrible-tasting popsicle. Um, (laughs) But it was a perfect true-false weekend, and it melted completely by, I think, the Monday after the festival. So 
Mm. Couldn't have planned it better myself. Okay, so and I tried. So it started off completely encased, and then it, it got up to the shoulders. Okay. So there was kind of a head poking out, but it still had this. We were able to fill it up with the layers, and it created this really cool, like, kind of layered effect, like you'd imagine seeing an Arctic ice or something. Right. Yeah. And it was outside. It was outside. Uh, yeah, the okay. small lawn. On- Right. Um, And then you did another one, uh, which I do remember, the Camera Obscura, which had just a lot of interest, a lot of people going in and and interacting with that. And what what was the genesis for that? I, when I was, I was living in New York at the time, and they had a massive one set up uh, right across the street from the Flatiron building. Hmm. And it was a little more... I'm going to go right out out and say I didn't invent camera obscuras. They've been around for thousands of years. (laughs) Um, But uh, I saw one, and it was incredible. And it was they had a much more refined lens, so it didn't... A normal camera obscura, which is just like a box with a hole in it that lets light pass through, will invert all the images it projects inside itself. But they had like a fancy lens and stuff, and I was like, this is really incredible, but I'd like to kind of abbreviate this even more and show people what just the smallest, most basic principle of Mm. what a camera is, which is just a single source of light focused down and let to expand so that it Mm. can project. It was incredible to build and really fun to bring people into it and watch them kind of like try to wrap their heads around. They kept asking like, how is it projecting? And I'm like, it's just the sun bouncing light off of stuff and (laughs) it's coming through. Basic science. (laughs) (laughs) It seems like whenever I uh, look at things that True False does, you have this kind of no holds barred. There's no, there's no limit make it happen mentality which is you know not where my brain goes i i think about immediately i think about like oh well there are limitations or you know what if is it legal are there going to be issues with it whereas you guys just kind of go full out is is there a point do you work within constraints yeah um (laughs) (laughs) or do you just think about oh we'll work it out later i think there are there are points where we um like to be limitless or like to to kind of push the edge about like well what can we do where can we fit more art what can we do but then a huge part of it is also once you have the idea and once you've set it up is to sort of ground it into like okay well let's break this down into units of like how do we do this in a way that creates something incredible that ideally someone or people haven't seen before and then how do we make it so it's safe so that if we are, we can sort of provide the math or provide the structure behind something okay. of like, this will not fall over <laughs> or, or like wind gusts will not hamper this or yeah. knock anything over. Like, so it's a, it's a fun balance we have to do of like, we want to create stuff that really excites people and really creates wonderment to get that feeling of awe or seeing something you've never seen before. Do you ever say no to things? So ideas come in and you think this is awesome, but we just can't make it happen. I mean, we have to say no to things inevitably when we have a, we have an open application process. Right. But it's never as clear cut as you think it might be. It might like mm. their ideas we'll we'll see and we'll be like, okay, well, we have to figure out how to make this happen, but in a in a way that's responsible, in a way that's right. not just like let's introduce this crazy idea and then <laughs> dust off our hands and walk away. Like, but yeah, you know, things you might not even consider, we have to factor in, like. What the what the sunlight on the side of the street might mm. be, or can we get electricity from this building after hours without having to like crack open a window and, right. and leave the building vulnerable or something? So, yeah. so 
yeah, we always take the safety very seriously, but there's also the, like an, a tremendous amount of other factors we run into when we have to find art that fits spaces that aren't necessarily like a museum or gallery space. Like right. the lobby of a theater where at any given point, 500 people might walk in or out. So mm. do stuff that's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so each year, True False sets a theme for the fest and artists respond to it, uh, whether that's for the marketing materials, the little bumps or shorts that introduce each film, as well as for the art installations. Amy Wilder, one of our former journalists for the Tribune, she wrote an article back in 2015. She said, True False is a festival that loves its art. The trifecta of film, live music and installations come together to make the event true singular. Talk us through the process of putting the art component of the fest together. Where does it all start? Well, it usually starts as soon as we hear the theme from Paul, David, and Camelia, and we go from there. Everyone on the art team or people who contribute to art, I'll kind of wrap our heads around it, figure out what we, how we interpret it, and then we put out a call for artists. And it's open call. Anyone can submit. Usually we there might be an artist we want to work with in particular, so we'll kind of send that application to them, but still, they have to go through everything that everyone else goes through. And, um, and then we just meet and sift through stuff and uh, pick out stuff we like, what really jumps out to us, what is exciting, but we might not be able to do it justice with our means of presentation, because true-false is an incredibly distinct means of... Uh, of displaying art because there's a lot of you're kind of you don't want to compete with the festival itself you want to complement it so when you're choosing when you're Mm -hmm. choosing art you obviously already have a footprint of the festival and you have sites presumably already picked out that have been the same sites in past years and maybe Mm -hmm. you expand it and involve uh, new sites each year when you're looking at that array of submissions are you mentally placing them yeah you you basically have to because the proposals we get are all very artists are very ambitious and inherently very specific so they want to create their ideal work and we have to find the space that does it justice and does its service and not just we have to kind of catch ourselves sometimes if thinking mm. like can we do this how can we do this in the best possible way and how can we support this art and the message and the story that it's conveying so we have to you know might be will this work better in an alleyway or will it work better in the lobby of a church mm. or um, stationary on like a middle of a street closure and what are the pros and cons of that and what does the artist think about where that might exist right but uh, it's always fun it's the great challenge of it is that get these very very strange ambitious and crazy ideas and then make them work and find the best place for them to thrive and right have you have you ever said yes to an idea and then got halfway through and thought oh man this is I just can't carry on with this or had to adapt it so much that you've felt like it hasn't really been the artist's original intent in the end or I guess you're so experienced now do you just know going into it this is going to work this is not going to work yeah you try and head that off as much as you can and of course in any kind of design and creation process you're going to figure stuff out it's like oh this might not work the way we think it is and then you cut all the smartest people you can, which working for True False, I'm very lucky to be surrounded by those folks. And we kind of sit down and work out as best we can, like, how do we proceed from here and include the artist in that conversation and say, like, like, this wasn't working the way we wanted it to. How can we still do it and make what you want to make? So this year, how many many places do you have for art? How many installations are there going to be? And how many submissions did you get in total? We have all of the places. Um, (laughs) It's... 
I think my last count was like 17 total of uh, returning pieces and new stuff and everything in between. But I think we get, I think we had about two dozen or so submissions this year and kind of whittled them down and figured out what was feasible and what mm-hmm. we can do and what, what serves the piece better, what works with the fast pass right. and what locations we can we can put stuff in. So. And do they come from all over the world? Um, yes, yes. I think we can comfortably say all over the world now. <laughs> <laughs> Almost every continent. Yes, just about. We're working on Antarctica. <laughs> and the artists, oh, you, you have a construction studio here in, in Colombia, mm-hmm. but are the artists responsible for flying in and constructing their work or does your team kind of take the specs and then build the work? It totally depends. It can be anything from an artist wants us to uh, completely build it in-house in our space. We call the lab, short for labyrinth, not laboratory. Right. <laughs> There's a lot going on there. Uh, Tracy Griever-Rice, who is making a... Uh, piece this year three pieces actually they're going to be three about 14 foot tall statues of ancient feminine deities that'll be in the ninth street closure in front of the missouri theater and she constructed these wonderful um cardboard mock-ups of them and brought them in and one to uh, inch scale inch to a foot scale and then we were able to sit around and think like okay well how do we make this how do we preserve this negative space how do we make an armature that's strong right. enough to support something that's 14 feet so that's our big in-house project that we're having a lot of fun working on. So now. is it made of metal or wood, the armature? The interior armature will be made of metal. The sort of uh, framework and structure is all going to be wood. And then she is currently treating and staining and working with a bunch of burlap um, coffee bags to make the outer skin of it. Wow, so. 14 feet, three 14 feet sculptures. Mm-hmm. So tell, what else is going to be there this year? What is What are the new sculptures this year and what's returning? New House is coming back. They are a collective outside of Rhode Island who made the, um, the piece Atmosphere, the giant inflatable piece that was in front of uh, Missouri Theater. They're returning with, it's a piece that's new to us, but they have made before. It's called Fabric Prism and it's sort of a dome with a white interior and the exterior is comprised of primary colored pyramid shapes so that as the sun passes through it at uh, different points of the day creates this very intense iridescent effect on Mm -hmm. the interior shell. That's as best as I can explain it. I'm really excited to see it in person (laughs) because it doesn't Mm -hmm. do it justice. And Uh, that's going to be in front of the Missouri Theater. That will be in front of the Missouri Theater Mm -hmm. along with Tracy's pieces. The artists Paul Kirby and Stephen Krejcik are creating a piece. They made the mechanical tree that was in the Missouri Theater this Mm -hmm. past year. There was articulated based on climate data. They're making a rig of animatronic flowers that will be in the Jesse Hall atrium. So that's the big, another big fun logistical project yeah. this year. <laughs> and we are, Carrie Elliott is creating these really gorgeous lanterns in the shape of silver carp that mm. will be suspended above Alley A uh, and illuminated from within. So that'll be really lovely. Stephanie Gould and Jordan Doig are the artists who did uh, the projection piece that was up against the the rise oh, yeah. on 9th. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're coming back with another piece, and they'll be this year utilizing two projectors. So it'll hopefully get along almost the entire side of that building, Wow! Um, which I'm very excited to see. Yeah, big project. And what is what is returning from what are the past favorites that you roll out year after year? We are... Does Camera Obscura come back? Because that seemed to be Camera Obscura. I, you know, I love that, but it was each year starting to kind of fall apart a little oh, bit. A little I kind wear of wanted, and tear of the festival. A little weekend. wear and tear. <laughs> 
gets, you know, it gets rough because, you know, some years it's incredible and some years it just gets snowed on. And <laughs> at the end of it, I think, like, we spent more money on gaff tape holding it together than, than the original material. <laughs> so <laughs> it was recycled into new art. But we're going to have Barb the Buffalo is coming back. Mm-hmm. It's another exciting piece. It's a giant life-size buffalo covered in um, computer keys. So we just had volunteers at the lab polishing up Barb, making her look <laughs> wonderful, giving her a new spring look. But yeah, it's uh, great stuff. And I think one of the exciting things about the festival for me is that you can walk between any two venues, if it's Rose Music Hall to, right. uh, to Jesse Hall, and there's constant visual reminders and things that are inspiring, sort of the true-false feeling. that right. you never You never walk out of a door and you're just in a city and having to process probably a very difficult documentary that you just watched. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) But you're just kind of caught in this massive festival experience. Right. So back in the early days of the festival, it was really, it was just about films and art was for decorating purposes. So you were turning diverse venues into funky auditoriums or Mm -hmm. party dens. But over the years, I don't remember when this kind of started. I've been, you know, going for not quite since the beginning, but 10, 12 Mm -hmm. years. Art took on more form and the Fest's art installation program was born. Where, where did that drive come from? Was it commentary from people? Was it you know, the, uh, the core team that just were pushing, let's do more art? I don't know. I don't know if there's a single element we can put a finger on as to what it took off. We just kind of stayed out of the way once it did because I think as we, like we said, we have the build space uh, of the, the business loop and I think as we got that developed more and a production team of builders that could just kind of create everything. We're kind of feeding off of the response and feedback of people just loving art. So mm. that just took over like gravity and uh, everyone got excited about submitting or contributing or re- referring people. And it's as sort of spaces got singled out and mm. figured out, oh, we can always use this space or, oh, this is, this is the perfect place to hang this or, or erect something here. It just kind of became a wonderful monster. But. Do you expand the, the footprint of the sites every year? Are you always looking for new venues where you can create art or do you feel like you're at maximum capacity in terms of your creation space? You know there's probably no maximum <laughs> capacity. I was like we gotta I think we have the footprint that we want we're just trying to find the negative space now and right. it's, this, it's an interesting balance of you want to have big visible art and you want to have um, all the space is filled but you don't want to make something that will go completely unnoticed because it's too slight or too right. out of the way or something. You want to always want to be contributing to the festival experience. I know that community art creation is something that you feel strongly about. And I wondered how local non-profit or schools can get involved with the art making. Sometimes uh, I think you had, I um, can't pronounce his name, the Irish artist Quiveen mm-hmm. or Delthy, or sorry, Quivine, I know you're not listening. Um, but anyway, you had Quivine here a few years ago and you had uh, school children involved with making his art. And is that something that schools can get involved with? Are you trying to involve more of the community in the art creation? We are. Um, I think the best way to do that is to go to truefalls.org uh, and sign up to volunteer and register for art or any other of our wonderful volunteer teams. But yeah, we. we try to we we do our absolute best to try and include uh educational opportunities and just and beyond that just opportunities for students to create art and i'm having a lot of fun working with volunteers and students who are coming into the lab and working on a project and have a very ambitious or interesting take on something and getting to work with folks on 
Yeah, here's how you can do that with a table saw. <laughs> <laughs> are you still hiring? And people people can come along still and be and become part of a team, or are you done? Oh, absolutely, <laughs> anyone. <laughs> Please volunteer. <laughs> still a lot to do right up until the last minute. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. I can I confess to being guilty of being a true false attendee who just runs from film to film and packing my schedule so full that I really don't have a huge amount of time for the non-film components, which every year I think I need to do less films and more of the other stuff. Does it sometimes feel that like you're working on this separate festival that gets a bit overshadowed by the other festival? Because you have your component, which is very specific within the overall footprint. Well, we, you know, I think the uh, music, film, and art are three legs on the same table, um, and they can kind of keep things pretty sturdy. So if we're, I think if we're doing our job right, it kind of everything is complementing itself so well mm. that you don't necessarily think about, oh, I saw, like, the music of True False is its own separate great thing. Yeah, or, or true. Art is its own, like, it's all complimentary that's why we have musicians playing before films that's Mm. why we put art in venues and stuff that it's all contributing to the same experience Mm. every year i think this can't get any better and then the next year i think how did they pull this off i mean there's just more and more and more every year more components you know the parades and i don't even know it just the list is endless (laughs) (laughs) i'm in charge of it i don't even know (laughs) do you ever get to see any films or are you just completely and i don't know weekend it's usually if i can get one it's cool (laughs) and it's always fun when i when i get to because i make a point to not learn anything about it i just kind of walk in blind and um sometimes that's yeah you get to see some very incredibly uplifting stuff and sometimes get to see a very powerful harrowing story but it's always that's the true false experience. So. It, it is. It yeah. is an amazing weekend. I always feel like I have a bit of a hangover on Monday, with or without any alcohol. Just an emotional yeah. hangover. Yeah. Most people are, <laughs> have coaster. three different types of hangovers, of <laughs> yeah. emotional, spiritual, and yeah, yeah. alcohol. <laughs> it, it, it is amazing. Is there, is there any other components about the art installations that you, you want to mention for this year's festival? Things that they should see. What are your, what are your must-sees? I think see everything. <laughs> <laughs> Good diplomatic answer. Exactly. But spend plenty of time, uh, weather permitting, in the uh, uh, sculpture yard on 9th Street. We're closing down the block again. I right. think this is the third year we're doing it. Um, That's for, nice when you do that. Yeah. Oh, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. Makes um, a big difference. Yeah, it just creates a like basically like a plaza-type space yeah. for general milling and yeah that's my favorite part of it, so. uh, yeah i love i love it when the streets are, are closed down because mm-hmm. saying like if you close down the bit in front of ragtag you know create another yeah little area there but that might be too much for we'll see people. one step at a time yeah, exactly um thank you so much duncan ben the true false film fest will run from thursday 28th of february through till sunday the 3rd of march in downtown columbia the film lineup will be announced on february the 6th uh duncan is in charge of all of the true false art installations thank you so much for all of your hours endless hours oh, and volunteerism <laughs> all the work you're listening to speaking of the arts and as usual we will end the show with a whistle stop rundown of some of the arts events that are going to be vying for your attention over the next seven days. Duncan, you are free to stay and listen or or free to abscond. Up to you.
tonight is the Columbia Art League's annual Let Them Eat Art fundraiser, where local chefs choose an artwork in the gallery's food exhibit show, which is called Gluttony this year. And then they create a dish of tapas inspired by that artwork. This is a ticketed event and tickets are limited. So if you haven't already got yours, give the Art League a call. Tickets are $40 with all proceeds supporting Cal's programs. The Como Shorts Film Festival kicks off tonight at Fretboard Coffee and continues on Saturday and Sunday. Each screening is an hour long and features shorts created by some of Colombia's indie filmmakers. Friday and Saturday, the events start at 6 and it starts with half an hour of live music and then the screenings start at 6.30. On Sunday, Como Shorts opens with live music by the Daves at 1pm and the film screenings at 1.30. Tickets for each screening are $10 online or $12 on the door. This is the second weekend for the Columbia Entertainment Company's production of Peter and the Starcatcher. Show starts at 7.30 tonight and tomorrow, plus there is a 2pm matinee on Sunday. Tickets are $14 and the show runs for one more weekend after this. At Stevens College, you can see Still I Rise, the annual dance company concert with classical ballet, modern and contemporary dance, choreographed by visiting guest artists. The performance is at the Mecklenburg Playhouse and starts at 7.30 tonight and tomorrow with a 2pm matinee on Sunday. And at the Blue Note tonight, the Grammy award-winning country singer, songwriter and musician, Marty Stewart and his fabulous superlatives take the take the stage for their Way Out West tour. That show starts at 8.30 and tickets, if they're available, cost from $25. At Rose Music Hall tonight, alt-rockers from Athens, Georgia, Lullwater are headlining, supported by Columbia hard rock band Dark Below. Their show starts at 9. Saturday morning at Columbia College, there is a closing reception and award ceremony for the college's annual high school art show. The reception will be in the Larson Gallery from 11am till noon. At Talking Horse Theatre on Saturday night, you heard of her earlier... Girl Rilla Theatre takes over the house for one night only for the first of a series of bi-monthly dynamic staged readings adapted for the stage by Meg Phillips Crespi. This weekend is the ancient Greek comedy Lysistrata. There is no cost to attend the performance and it starts at 7.30. At Missouri United Methodist Church, the Choral Arts Alliance of Missouri will host its fourth annual concert to honour Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy. The concert will include a performance of gospel-inspired works by the Columbia Community Gospel Choir, the Columbia Kids Gospel Choir and Columbia Chorale, with all proceeds going to the Bold Academy that seeks to empower and uplift black and brown girls. The concert is at 7 p.m. tomorrow night. At Rose Music Hall, Violet and the Undercurrents will be performing a tribute to the Cranberries at 8 p.m. If ska punk is your thing, then head to the Blue Note Saturday night for Real Big Fish and there the Life Sucks Let's Dance Tour. That show starts at 8 and tickets are 25. And at the Bridge in Jefferson City, the Molly Healy Trio play as part of the Silks and Strings, an evening of the arts event, which also features the Springfield Aerial Fitness and Visual Art, courtesy of artists from the Four Quarters Art House. Sunday night at the Whitmore Recital Hall, Peter Miyamoto will give a piano recital of Bach, Beethoven and Schubert. His concert starts at 7.30. Tickets are $5 or free with an MUID. You can see the MU Graduate Showcase featuring work by Mizzou Art Program's MFA candidates from Monday through February the 21st. The exhibit is housed in the George Caleb Bingham gallery on campus and it's open from 8 till 5 Monday to Friday. On Monday night you can also hear Peter Zambito's percussion recital at Whitmore Recital Hall on the MU campus. On Wednesday evening actors of all ages, types, genders and ethnicity are sought for auditions for the world premiere of Alice which will open at Mizzou's Rheinsberger Theatre on April the 18th. Auditions will be at the Middlebush Hall in the Walter Johnson Auditorium at 6.30 and dancers and musicians are also being sought. 
And Wednesday night next week, the monthly Rose Comedy Club Pints and Punchlines night is back at Rose Musical. That starts at nine. And finally, next Thursday is the start of the final weekend of the Columbia Entertainment Company's production of Peter and the Starcatcher. You have been listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia, with me, Diana Moxon, and my engineer Mike Hagen. We'll be back next week with more news, views and interviews on the arts in Missouri. Stay arty, Columbia.